6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Well, we're continuing our survey, exploration of the Epistle of the Hebrews. And we're in session 11, focusing on chapter 10. And uh, as you know, the first seven chapters was all about Jesus presenting him as the new and better deliverer, better than Moses, better than Aaron, and so forth, after, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Then we're in the second session, a better covenant, a better sanctuary, and a better sacrifice. And we'll have, finally, at the wrap-up, the practical side of all of this. But last time, in chapter 9, we focused on the sanctuary, that the sanctuary that is presently operative is in heaven with our high priest there, in contrast to the Levitical high priest who officiated in the temple on earth. And this has all been superseded, is the point. And chapter 9 really continues in chapter 10. That, that theme will continue in our early part of chapter 10 tonight. But then we're going to shift, when we get to verse 18 of chapter 10, we're going to get into uh, uh, the beginning of what some people label as a, the next major or third major section of the book, the practical applications. And interestingly enough, it, that section opens uh, with uh, a, the fourth of five warnings. And many people treat these five warnings as sort of interruptions of the sweep of the author, and quite the contrary, there really is key points as we begin to understand the meaning of the whole epistle. So I want to highlight something else here. Remember that when we were in chapter 6 of Hebrews, that's well known as the major riddle in the New Testament. Hebrews is considered one of the most difficult doctrinal studies in the, in the entire New Testament. And Hebrews 6 is probably the biggest problem within this epistle in the minds of many. And we dwelt on that back there in 6. But there's another tough passage that comes, becomes a close cousin of chapter 6. And that's a passage in chapter 10. So we're going to encounter the fourth of five warnings uh, in this session tonight. Between these two passages, between 6 and 10, of course, we have chapters 7, 8, and 9, which introduce and emphasize more than any other place in the Bible the priestly work of Jesus Christ. When we think of high priests, we learn all about the high priests of the Lytical system, but we're here speaking of something that has superseded that. And that priestly work of Jesus Christ avails for you and me. And we're going to get into some very heavy apostasy verses. And let's not lose sight as to why He, Christ, ever liveth to make intercessions for you and me. That whole build-up and key point was put there before we get to chapter 10. as sort of a preparation, if you will. And I want to warn you in advance, if you're worried about chapter 10, some verses in chapter 10, the very fact you're worrying about it demonstrates you probably don't have nothing, anything to worry about. It's the people that aren't worrying about it that are the worry, okay? And you'll see what I mean as we get into this. And... Uh, I want you to remember 
I know I'm, I sound very repetitive here, but you need to, everybody that gets confused about the book gets confused because they forget to whom it was written. It was written to Christian believers. These happen to come out of Judaism. Yes, they're Jewish, but the point is they're Jewish believers. Throughout the epistle is let us, let us, let us. The writer puts himself in the same category. These are believers. We're not talking about unbelievers in this picture, okay? You need to understand that. And he constantly demonstrates that Christ fulfilled and set aside the things of the past. He reviews all these things of the past to set them aside, to put them behind us. The sacrifices have been paid. All the sacrifices on the altars and throughout the Old Testament were anticipatory examples or models or teaching illustrations of the ultimate sacrifice that was paid once and for all on the cross. The rituals have all been fulfilled. The old things were only emblematic, if I can use that term, pointing to the shedding of the blood of our Lord and Savior once and all for sin. Once you understand who He is and the blood that was shed, it colors everything, if you will. Well, let's jump into chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, having a shadow of the things, good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. First word, for. This ties to our previous chapter. You could best probably teach this if we had time without a chapter break. This is just continuing the theme from last time in chapter 9. And so he's hammering still the cleaning up on the sacrifice issue here. And this begins the explanation of what he'd been saying from chapter 9, verses 11 to 28, if you've been keeping notes. Okay. Having a shadow of good things to come, and uh, not the very image. There are two different Greek words being used here for shadow. The first one, the shadow things, means a pale shadow, that in contrast to a sharp or distinct one. It's a fuzzy glimpse. It's not a sharp uh, image. In fact, the other word means, the icon, which means a true representation, which it's not. In other words, the law was having a shadow of good things to come, but not the very image. In other words, it's an imperfect representation is what he's saying. It can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. That's its problem, making it perfect. The law could only show us our need. It could not repair that need. The law couldn't make us perfect. It set a standard we can't meet. And so it shows us the need for a sacrifice in the first place. That's why when the law was given, the sacrifices were instituted because they knew they wouldn't keep the law. So at least there was a remedy, but not for all sin. There were some sins that had no remedy, and we'll come to those. But the main point is, the law was, gave, a, gave us a, a hint of what's coming, but it could never, even with all the sacrifices that were done again and again, year after year, could make the comers to the sacrifice perfect or complete. If the sacrifices could have made them perfect, they would never have to be repeated, right? The very fact that they had to be repeated daily, year after year, etc., it, it shows that they were intended to be a temporary teaching tool for the ultimate that they are pointing to. He continues, verse 2, For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. In other words, if your sins were really dealt with, you could come away with a clean conscience. No, they were just covered. 
Otherwise, wouldn't they have been ceased to be offered? The very repetition of the sacrifice shows their insufficiency. And if, if they'd been sufficient, they, of course, wouldn't have to be uh, uh, repeated. And it's interesting, by the way, that the tense of the Greek in here shows that the Levitical sacrifices were still continuing at the point he wrote this, which means this was written prior to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So it's a, it's a, a dating boundary, if you will. And... Uh, but continuing, but in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. So every year we're reminded they didn't work. We're still imperfect. We still have uh, the sin hanging over us every year. Every Yom Kippur, the yearly sacrifice, they did this year after year after year. And they still never accomplished the ultimate. There remained something the law and the sacrifice could never do, that is make perfect which in the context of the book of Hebrews means to bring to spiritual maturity. The theme from this, from first to the last verse, is one primary thrust. Coming to spiritual maturity. Not to become a Christian. They're already Christians. The issue before each one of these verses and points and so forth is to bring the readers, the listeners, to spiritual maturity. So if you're not a Christian, this has no meaning to you. But if you're a Christian, it challenges you to take the next step. I often ask an audience, how many are saved? And all the hands go up. And I say, good, what have you done with it? Because he saved you for a purpose. We tend to celebrate accepting Christ as a victory. We celebrate, you know, someone's led to the Lord. That's not a home run, it's a first base deal. The idea is to continue on to maturity, and that's what this epistle is all about. Remember now, we read in the New Covenant, it was back in Jeremiah 31, but it was emphasized in chapter 8 of Hebrews a few chapters ago that under the new covenant, God would remember their sins no more. That's a once and for all deal, not repeated every year. Okay? Then he continues to explain, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Wow! If you're Jewish, that's a blow. You've got, you have centuries of these laborious offerings. They didn't take away sins, they covered sins pending the final sacrifice. And as you see here, the Old Testament sins were only covered, not taken away. The word is kafar in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament. That's a word for covering. It's the same word that was used when Noah was told to build his ark. He was told to cover the ark with bitumen or tar, or pitch, if you will, to cover. The word atonement and cover is the same word in the Hebrew. It means to cover. Doesn't don't do away with it. It just temporarily patches it, so to speak. In Noah's case, the gover was not taken away. It was only covered by the, the tar and so forth. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. The animals did not offer the, their blood in perfect obedience and faith. <laughs> The animals didn't volunteer for the duty, right? They didn't, it, they didn't do it voluntarily. It was necessary for the Messiah to come and do it voluntarily. There's this wherefore. That's the reason the Messiah had to come into the world by way of the Incarnation. All these sacrifices were just anticipatory where the Creator Himself would deign to be, enter His creation, become a man, fulfill the requirement, and go to His death to pay the price. Bizarre idea until we understand the whole picture. Now here the writer quotes Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, 
to make this point. It's going to be laced all through the coming verses here. So let's just take a look at it. Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. And this is our style. The scrolls imply Old Testament, the little, the other things. I just do an Old New Testament to remind you we're going back in the Old Testament here. Psalm 40, verse 6 to 8. Sacrifice and offering thou didst not desire. Mine ears hast thou opened. I'll come back to that. That doesn't mean what you think it means. Uh, burnt offering and sin offering hast thou not required. Then said I, lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is in with my heart. Who's speaking? Can't hear you. Jesus, good for you. The volume of the book is written of me. One of the discoveries you need to make personally is the discovery, and it's not something you do overnight, it's something you do in a lifetime, but discover that everything in the book is written of Jesus Christ. All the little funny rules, regulations, subtleties, even the encryptions hidden in the genealogies, astonishing, astonishing. Lo, I said, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me. Verse, chapter 40, verse 7. And this literally means that every page of the Bible speaks of Jesus Christ. It's on every page. But there's another phrase in here that deserves a little comment, especially because of where we live. He says, Mine ears hast thou opened, or pierced, is what it really says. What is he ta He's talking about a, a well-known procedure within that culture. The, for a bond slave. If you were a slave paying off a debt, let's assume that you were indentured for seven years to pay off a debt or something, at the end of the seven years, you're free to go. You've done it. You've finished your service. But often in that period of time, you became so devoted to the family that you chose to be adopted as a bond slave, a doulos. And uh, this is what Psalm 46 is alluding to. Mine ears hast thou opened or pierced. It really means digged. Mine ears have been digged, if you will, as referring to this concept by choice. And uh, so, if you chose to be a bond slave, they would take you to the doorpost of the house and pierce your ear to the doorpost with a shoemaker, like an awl, like an ice pick, a shoemaker's awl. And, uh, and, uh, and from that point on, you probably wore an earring of pride because you were a slave that was, you volunteered to spend the rest of your days serving that family. You were proud of that. You were, this was a privilege that you asked for and they granted. And, the sound, and so this is what we call a bond slave. Why is this so important? Because both John and Paul speak of themselves as bond slaves of Jesus Christ, meaning they're dedicated for the rest of their days to serve Him. Now, why is this so important to us? Well, first of all, the word all appears only twice in the Bible and it has to do with this procedure. But it's important to us, Nan and I anyway, is that when we came to Coeur d'Alene, Coeur d'Alene is a, is a French label, as most of you know, the name of the tri tribe of Indians here was named by the French-Canadian trappers because they regarded them as sharp traders. And so they named them the heart of the all. They were sharp traders, was the idea, their concept. Sort of a backhanded compliment. But to us, anybody with a biblical perspective, the heart, the Coeur d'Alene refers to the heart of the bond slave. Heart of the bond slave. And that bar, my hand is up, right? Okay. Okay. So... Uh, that's it. We're committed without reservation forever to our master. And this is what's being alluded to in Psalm 40, where my ears have been digged. And Jesus says, for, uh, for I said, I, lo, I come. Jesus Christ is talking here, as you know, from, from that verse. And that's exciting. He's coming. Our master is coming. We're in his service until then. And that's something that uh, we look to with great anticipation. I want to pause and give you some hermeneutical insight. Hermeneutics being the study of interpretation. Most of the quotes in the New Testament 
are from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, interestingly enough, because that was the commonly used thing. And uh, it's interesting as you study these quotes in the New Testament from the Greek Old Testament, you discover the authors in general attribute unqualified divine authority to the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That gives us comfort as we use that as a basis. And sometimes they base their argument in the New Testament on a single word in the Septuagint. I'll give you a, a one example. I don't think it's the one I used here, but there's others you can look up in your notes. And that is the, uh, in Isaiah 7.14, that he'd be born of a virgin. In the Hebrew, the word is Alma, and some people say, well, that could mean something other than virgin. No, Septuagint, it's Greek, and it's clearly a virgin. It's less ambiguous. So the point is, often, the, he, the, 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 this is true, the, 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 the Septuagint is amplifying. The Septuagint was used by them as English is today. And there's lots of examples of that. And that was one of them I just gave you. Some variations attempt more accuracy than that. Sometimes they'll quote from the Septuagint, but they'll vary it to get, make it more clear, a little more precise, a little more accurate. There's examples in your notes. I won't go through them all here. Some, some are paraphrased to highlight a specific application from the Septuagint. There are some quotes that summarize several passages. They'll quote from several passages, but they'll weave them together into a summary. So we learn hermeneutically. We understand interpretation from the way they interpreted the Septuagint. You with me? Okay. In some cases, there's only an allusion, and it's not intended to be a complete, a complete translation. You follow me? It's, it's just, a, it's just a, 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 an example. Sometimes, the Holy Spirit rewords the restatement as a human author might. Sometimes as a human author, you might quote somebody, but you might reword it to make it more clear. You with me? Okay. Now, I'm going to show you some interesting examples as we go through this a little later. Let's, back, let's summarize the sacrifice thing. Sacrifices started in Eden. The first intimation of the, the plan of redemption was when Adam and Eve put aprons of skins, uh, of, of, excuse me, of, of leaves, and they were replaced by coats of skins by God Himself. Why? Teaching them by the shedding of innocent blood they'd be covered. And you say, that's a pun. Yes, exactly. That's a deliberate connotative transfer to make a point. And that's the, the, the plan of redemption would involve, um, uh, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. The first example of that is Cain and Abel. Cain offered the fruits of a cursed ground, and Abel offered the ordained sacrifice of a lamb. The fact that he was a shepherd and Cain was a farmer confuses the picture to most people. That's got nothing to do with it. What this teaches us is that Abel was following the instructions. Cain was not. He was doing it his way. And so it was his sacrifice, not his character, that's at issue. And that's going to be alluded to in the next chapter. We'll come to that. Now, before the law was given, the head of the household was the family priest. Before, the law, before Exodus 20, the head of each household did the Passover. Passover is not a Levitical offering. Did you realize that? Passover was done in the Passover, long before. That was, that was Exodus 12. The law isn't given until Exodus 20. During that interval, it's the head of the house that's the priest of the family. After the law is given, the priests alone offered sacrifice because you were not allowed in the temple. You were not allowed in the tabernacle. You went to the gate and you offered what you wanted. You gave it to him and he'd do it for you. The priest did the offering. Again, being instructional here. Christ is our high priest and there's in several, and he's also our sacrifice. He's our penal sacrifice, emphasized in Galatians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5. He's our substitution. It was voluntary. It was redemptive. It was propitiatory. It was reconciling. It was efficacious. And it also revealed 
the whole situation. And I won't go through all of this here, but the notes, they'll be in your notes so that you can dig through these at a time you want to make a careful study of how many ways Jesus was our sacrifice. And I'm indebted to these are the kinds of notes you'll find in most study Bibles like Schofield and others. That's where I cribbed this one. But, uh, and by the way, this is not the only passage that clearly implies that animal sacrifices were temporary, or is it the, nor is it the only passage that emphasized the sacrifices were useless without faith. That's through Isaiah, Isaiah 1, Jeremiah 6, Hosea 6, Amos 5. In other words, here's at least four places in the Old Testament that says this very thing. This is not a doctrinal contrivance of the writer. It's fascinating to me to see that Paul did, chose not to sign this epistle for a number of reasons we've reviewed, but he bases his entire argument on texts that his readers accepted as foundational. You get the point? What, the points he's making are inferences you draw from the Old Testament, not from some New Testament revelation, okay? It was God's will to arrange the final sacrifice in this manner by preparing a body with which he could die, into which he could die, within which he could buy, uh, die for man. So, now by the way, here's a sobering thought. To go through a sacrifice today, if all this is true, is to trod underfoot the blood of Jesus Christ. Wow. Hebrews 9, verse 6, In burnt offerings and sacrifice for sin thou hast no pleasure. He's contrasting what the annual sacrifice would not do with what the blood of Jesus could do. From verses 5 through 7, he's going to point out that God considered the once and for all acceptable sacrifice, and that only sacrifice was that he comes through perfect obedience through faith. In other words, Jesus sacrificed, but applies to us through obedience and faith. And uh, then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book is written of me to do thy will. This, is a re this of course, is, is recapping ver uh, verse 7 of, uh, of uh, Psalm 40. Verse 8 of Hebrews 10. Above when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. And this, what he's quoting here from is from Psalm 40, verse 6. And it's interesting to realize a third of the Torah, a third of the books of Moses are spent discussing these offerings and sacrifices that were to be made, and yet they no longer obtain. And so the sacrifice of Jesus was a voluntary sacrifice. It came with obedience. The Old Testament sacrifices are contrasted with obedience. They were required by the law, and the animals didn't volunteer, you see. The animals did not obey, but Jesus did. And they did not go to the death as an act of personal obedience on their own. That sounds funny to say, but the point he's making is the contrast here. And uh, so these sacrifices didn't please God. They were just his way of getting people to understand what was coming. No obedience was involved in part of animals. They were offered entirely on the basis of the law of Moses. And when the Messiah, God the Son, said to God the Father, Lo, I am come to do your will, he stated that he was coming willingly and obedient to be what? What was he coming for? To be that final sacrifice. That's again my, my I try to emphasize perhaps too often, but uh, uh, Mel Gibson's book, uh, movie I should say, The, the Passion, that uh, has, it, is, uh, it has two deficiencies, spic, uh, sp conspicuous ones. One is he, it, it implies that the crucifixion was a tragedy. No, it was an achievement. Jesus came to do that and to be the final sacrifice for sin. And the second thing, of course, the book, the book keeps saying that, the movie fails to do, 
is to present who Jesus Christ really is. And I'm not sure how he would have done that, but the point is that's missing. That's the whole point of the whole thing, actually. Anyway, verse 9, Then he said, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. What's he, taking, what's he doing away with? The law, the first covenant. Yes, exactly right. To establish the second. Again, this is quoted from Psalm 40, verse 8. And his death, the sacrifice of the Mosaic covenant, were taken away. And the second was brought in, the one sacrifice upon which the new covenant is established. That's where we get the New Testament gets its name. It's from this whole issue. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. And again, here is another clear statement of something that's funny. You can't get this across. So many people, as Christians, they get enamored with the Old Testament, and that's healthy, that's good. And they start studying the Jewish feast days and try to understand what they all mean. And that's wonderful and, and, and fruitful and, and worth doing. But it's interesting how often, from all of that, they start finding themselves trying to keep the Torah, getting back under the law. And to do that means they don't understand the purpose and accomplishments of Christ. And it's disturbing to realize that to even consider that is to uh, is an undoing of what Christ came to undo. Or, in other words, okay, double undoing there. I'm not sure that's, uh, that's in the Greek. No, I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> Verse 10. By the which we will be sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It's interesting, in the Greek text, the author uses a perfect participle with a finite verb. What does that mean? That emphasizes the believers are in a permanent, continuous state of sanctification. Your justification is once and for all, but you are then in a permanent state of sanctification, some making more progress than others. They've been made permanently holy in the sight of God, that is declared justified. Okay? It's His blood that saves them and sanctifies them. Why? Because the offering up of the body of Jesus was once and for all. That's why justification is once and for all. For all of you, it's past tense. It's been done. We'll talk more about sanctification and all this unfolds here. Every priest standeth daily ministering and offering sometimes, oftentimes the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. They do this daily, every day, every year, etc. This time, the focus isn't on Yom Kippur once a year. It's on the, the daily ritual that they do. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.